Um, we are going to have a good, constructive time in God's Word tonight. I hope that every time that we meet, that's the case. But I, I think tonight, I really, really am looking forward to this. Uh, our text is one of those few in the Bible that are more than the sum of its parts. Uh, it, it's a chapter uh, that is so important for every Christian to get the most they can out of it because there's so much here. It's kind of like, kind of like when you sit down at a, at a table that's full of food that you, you know all of it's good and you can only receive so much of it. But I believe spiritually, if we can if we will receive all of this, uh, we can handle all of it and we can be better because of it. Um, the Bible, if the Bible has peaks and valleys, this chapter is a peak among them all. Um, if you were to separate every chapter of the Bible into its own individual file and organize them on a shelf or in a cabinet based on importance, this chapter would be at the very top or at the very point uh, of priority. Uh, of course, we're in the middle of our study in 1 Corinthians, and we've studied some very important chapters already. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to go ahead and say this, and, and I know, know kind of in the middle of it all, it may seem like it's just kind of, I'm just saying this because we're, we're, we're studying it, uh, but over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be studying several chapters, several, several uh, uh, chapters of 1 Corinthians that are super important, some of them because of doctrine, and, and some of them because of the practical daily impact that they can make for us if we will adopt the truths and, and live by them. Uh, so uh, I hope you look forward to chapters 12, 13, and 15, because those three are super, super big. If you've ever read them before, if you know what they contain, you know why they're important. But tonight, we are in chapter 10. Uh, so I really believe that four of, of the next, uh, of the rest of these chapters from 10 to 16, uh, four of them are you don't want to miss and you don't want to uh, dismiss what they have for us because I believe these are, these are very important. Uh, all of God's Word is important, but some of them, again, they, they take the, they, they, they're a notch above the rest in terms of importance for us to listen and apply. Uh, so we just finished up a section where Paul is addressing the Corinthians about how they participate in evangelism. So we've talked about how evangelism begins by serving others. And we spent chapter 8 and 9 talking uh, about how we must be willing to serve others Remember chapter 8, be willing to give up something if it means getting to people. Paul said, I'll swear off meat for the rest of my life if it means being a witness for Jesus. We talked last week about how he said he would be a servant of all in order to save some, in order to win some to Jesus. And, and, and why that is so important. And we spent last week talking about why it's so important. Now, chapters 10 and 11 begin another new section where Paul is going to be talking more so to uh, us individually and how... Uh, the choices we make uh, impact uh, our participation in and our accountability to uh, the body of Christ. So while this chapter is going to deal more so with our individual placement in the body, it nonetheless deals with our larger accountability to the church. And, and as we've talked about, if, uh, if, if one part of the body isn't working properly, the whole body somehow is affected. So Paul is going to begin chapter 10 by appealing to the church on, based on the story an experience of Israel. Uh, he hasn't done that so far in First Corinthians, and he really doesn't do that a lot in all of it, any of his letters, but he's going to do that here, and I think that's a pretty neat, neat connection we're going to make. Uh, he's going to talk about Israel specifically under Moses' leadership. Uh, think about the Exodus, think about the wilderness, so the books of Exodus, books of Numbers, those are two uh, books he's going to be drawing points from. Uh, and, and if you think about it, most of those stories... When the Bible refers to Israel, we often read it as a single 
thing or a single entity, but all the stories of, of, of during Moses' time, when the Bible refers to Israel, it's talking about hundreds of thousands of people, right? Uh, and, and I think Paul is using the, the reference about Israel during that time strategically because he's writing to the Corinthians about the church, how the church works. And he's talking to the church as a single body, but we know and we've discussed that the church is comprised of many bodies, right? We all make up the body of Christ, but we all individually have a role to play. Uh, so Paul, as as he appeals to Israel, he's drawing that connection and that comparison to how the church is very similar to how Israel functioned as the people of God. Uh, so what each member does is vital for the greater good of the whole. So in the Old Testament, when you read about Israel did this or Israel did that, that's referring to what many hundreds of thousands of people did. But collectively, the decisions they made, the unity they had or did not have, it ultimately swayed the nation in one direction over the other. Uh, some people suffered for the sins of others, right? It, some, it wasn't that all of them did the unanimously bad thing or all of them always did the right thing, but it was enough to sway the direction direction of things or to influence those around them. And that's how the church works, right? That all of us have a role to play and all of us impact the greater good of the whole. So if you like sermons where you're going to look in the, where we're going to look in the mirror, not literally, but you know, uh, figuratively, uh, this sermon is for you, but, but not the sermon, not the kind of looking in the mirror where you think, man, don't I look good? Maybe some of y'all do that uh, before you go to bed. I don't know. I think you. I think I look my worst before I go to bed. Then when I want to wake up, I look even worse. So I don't. I don't do a lot of looking in the mirror. But when I do look in the mirror, I'm always upset about what I see. Um, but uh, if you've ever been getting ready before, and maybe you've thought to yourself, something doesn't look right, then hey, uh, maybe 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 you're maybe you're onto something. No. Sometimes I'm looking in the mirror and, you, you know, have you ever just kind of been unsatisfied with, with trying to, you know, get ready? And, and I know some men don't care about this, but, you know, me, I'm trying to present myself. Sometimes I'll look at myself and think, I just don't, I just don't, I'm not happy about whatever I, I'm looking at. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it's because this or that, you know, your hair, your clothes that you're wearing, something isn't right. But a lot of times um, it's because you just don't feel good. Right? And if you don't feel well, then the problem isn't your hair, it's not your clothes, it's not the visible. Uh, the problem is you don't feel well. And when you don't feel well, no matter how hard you work to look well, there's a connection there, isn't there? Uh, that when something's not right on the inside of us, then nothing seems to be right anywhere outside of us. And maybe you've had that experience before where you are trying to fix yourself up, you're trying to get ready, you're trying to be motivated about going out to work or going out to wherever you're going, but when you don't feel good, no amount of, uh, of preparation is really going to make you feel better because when something's not right inside, it kind of affects everything outside. It affects you, of course, it affects kind of the way you receive and interpret everything around you. Uh, and that's why this chapter is so important because Paul is going to pry at us a little bit. He's going to pry open our hearts a little bit and he's going to take a look inside and he's going to let us take a look inside or hopefully we'll take a look inside. So rather than speaking on a particular external sin, he's going to lead us in examining our hearts in whatever sinful inclinations we may have that we might that we might not be aware of, but they're finding their way into our everyday lives. That something inside of us is working its way out and it's influencing what we do or maybe what we don't do. 
Now, I'll tell you, Paul's approach in this chapter is really brilliant. Of course, he was inspired because he calls back to the children of Israel as they just left Egypt. And he compares their experience as they just left Egypt to our experience as when we just got saved. That as they were saved out of Egypt, as we've come to Christ, he compares the wonders they saw as they left Egypt to the wonders that we experience as new Christians. And then he's going to draw a line between how they fell away and how we often stumble even though we've been given everything we could ever need to stay close to God. So keep that in mind as we read, and we're going to go ahead and read the first 11 verses, and then we're going to unpack them a couple verses at a time. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers, all of our fathers, were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses or into Moses in Israel, the nation, in the cloud and in all the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. So baptized means that they were made part of. They were immersed into this new identity. They were now the people of God. They were Israel when they crossed the Red Sea. They ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered. Literally, they were killed in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. That there was something in them that kept call, causing them to do the wrong things. And Paul states explicitly, I'm writing this because I don't want you to follow that same pathway, even though you're very likely to. Verse 7, do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, they, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That there was a disconnect between what God provided them and what they did with it. Verse 8. No, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. And nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor complain or murmur as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, you and I might think that committing sexual morality is not nearly, it should not be on the same level as complaining or murmuring, but Paul is talking about a single thing going on in our hearts that shows up in our lives in different ways. Some it calls to commit sexual sins. Others it calls to complain. And Paul is kind of putting those on the same level, whereas you and I would never put those on the same level, right? Oh yeah, I complain a little bit, but that doesn't mean my heart's messed up like those people. But notice how Paul is trying to put all of us in this area of awareness, awareness that there might be something God wants to do in our heart that we're not picking up, that we're not receiving. So he brings up that they complained, and, and we know the story, they murmured. That was what the whole story of, of Numbers is. They complained to Moses, they murmured to Moses, and, and, and God always responded with a, with a real negative or a harsh way because he says, hey, you shouldn't be, shouldn't be complaining. Uh, as some of them did, they complained, were destroyed by the destroyer and all the destructive things that happened around them. Verse 11, this is a big verse. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for, what's the word? Our, our admonition. So, why were they written? So that we 
might have them as, what's the word? An example. Now, that, that makes me feel pretty important that God let all that happen to them so that he could write it down so I might could read about it and not go down that same road, right? Written for our example, our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, Paul wrote this in 40, 50 AD, and, and there's been 2,000 years since then. Yet, if he referred to them as at the end of the age, then all the more, right? It matters to us who are much closer than they were. So he lays a foundation in the first five verses that's going to make more sense when we get to the end of this passage and, and when, we, when we unpack the end of the passage. Uh, but I want to go ahead and break down what he's saying here in the first five verses. In verse 1, he tells us that there is something we can learn and gain from studying how the children of Israel came out of Egypt and their experience in the new relationship with God. There's something we can learn based on what they were offered and what we've been offered. Does that make sense? That they, as they were brought into the family of God, they were given access to things and they were made aware of things that changed their world or could change their lives. And I think he's wanting us to understand that as we have come to Christ, the same thing and and actually the, the true and full version has happened to us. Now, he bookends this passage in verse 1 and verse 11, and he even states it in verse 6, that these things happen so that we could benefit from them, right? That what, doesn't he say that? I don't want you to be unaware of what happened to our forefathers. And he says in verse 6, this is an example. Verse 11, this is an example for our admonition. So he makes it clear that, he's, that these things happen to them so that we could straighten up a little bit, sit up a little bit straighter and think, wow, I don't need to make the same mistake that they made. So there's something valuable and beneficial and practically uh, practical to be found in comparing and contrasting the Christian experience and our place in the church to how Israel came into being. It's almost like that was part of God's plan. And it was, of course it was. So he says, I don't want you to miss this. And this is just a sidebar for how you should read the Old Testament as a whole. The Old Testament, uh, that we should understand and interpret all of it through the lens of Christ. As in, hey, their participation in in the nation of Israel, Abraham coming to God, Moses coming to God, Israel coming through the Red Sea, becoming a nation. All that is a picture of you and I coming to Christ. And at different stages through the story, there's different examples of of the Christian experience. But all of it should be read through the lens of Jesus. We've been saved in him. We've been placed in his church. So we see that similar experience in, in how that was, you know, a, a pointing towards what we now have experienced in full. So he, go down, he goes down a checklist here. In verse 1, he says that they were under the cloud. So we've got the first verse here, the first, the first line. Verse 1 tells us they were under the cloud. Now, what is the cloud that they were under? Remember the story. They were, uh, as they went from Egypt toward the Red Sea, and then as they went through the wilderness, the Bible says they were following a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, right? Y'all know the story, that they were being guided by the cloud that was representing the power and the sovereignty and the rule of God. So similarly, we are under that cloud of God. We are under that pillar of fire by God. He is over us. We are under him. 
Do you, do you see the, 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 the comparison there? And then in verse 2, he says that they were sealed. Verse 1 and 2 says he, they passed through the sea and they were baptized, immersed into Moses, and then again, under the cloud and in and through the sea. So that tells us they were sealed by the water, and that's a picture of God's saving mercy and God's saving grace. So they were guided to the water, they were guided through the water, and when they come out of the water, they were sealed, they were secured, they were saved by the, by the mercy and grace of God. So the cloud is their guidance, the water is their grace, it's God's grace. We, we see that, I think, pretty clearly. And then it says in verse 3 and 4, they were spiritually nourished. Now, we know the story, they were, uh, manna fell down from heaven, and, and I don't know, you know, they were sweet slices of bread, uh, uh, donuts, or whatever you want to call them. Manna from heaven. And then the, the interesting thing is he says that they drink water from the spiritual rock, and that water, that rock followed them. Now, the story goes that Moses had a staff that he would strike the rock or speak to the rock, and this rock, uh, whether was it the same rock? Paul seemed to think that it was a single rock, whether they carried it around with them, put it on a wagon, I don't know. But there was this rock that was this supernatural well. Now, they were in the desert, so there was no oasis just at, around every corner. So this rock served as the fountain, and when they would strike it or speak to it, this rock would just gush water from uh, the, the, the wellspring. Uh, of course, it was a miracle. It was a supernatural work of God. But this rock was where their water came from. So they were spiritually nourished. Now, Paul says the rock, he, he states it, the rock was a picture of, the rock was, is a picture of Jesus. And really, all of this is a picture of Christian salvation. And two words I want to give you uh, to sum all this up is under and upon. Can y'all say those with me? Under and upon. They were under God's guidance and grace. Is that, that pretty clear to see? They were under the cloud. They were under the, 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 the water that sealed them. They were under God. They were under his guidance and under his grace. So when you're under God, that means you're pretty protected, right? That when you're under his umbrella, nothing's going to get to you that doesn't come through him. If you're under God, then you are right where you need to be. But not only did God have their covering, cover them from the top, he had them secured on the ground. The rock of Christ is a picture of the foundation that we now have in Christ. We are secured upon the rock and we are strengthened by the rock. The rock is where they got their nourishment from, the spiritual water. And of course, in Christ, we are firm, we are secured, and we are strengthened. So Paul tells us in verses 1 through 5, you are under God and you are upon God. And there's, I mean, can you, is there a better place to be? You've got a nice floor that's not going to fall through, and you've got a ceiling that's not going to leak. You are right where you need to be. You are under and upon. You are under God's guidance and under God's grace. You are upon the security and the strength of Christ. So it makes it clear that Israel was saved by God's power sealed by God's power and sustained by God's power under God's power under and, and secure in his power and sustained by his power just like we are they were saved as a nation a picture of you and I being saved as Christians but verse 5 through 7 makes it clear that 
that they didn't benefit from this as much as they were meant to or could have been given provisions to. Look at those again. But with most of them, not all of them, but most, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That, that means that they didn't make it. And go read Numbers. Go read, go read the book of Numbers. It's not a good scene. It's not a pretty picture. It's not a, oh, well, let's tell those stories to our grandchildren. There was, <laughs> nobody wants to tell those stories again. Verse 6 is, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after or desire after the evil things that they also desired. So here's what Paul tells us. The desires that led them astray are in us. Do y'all see that connection? That we should not lust after the things that they, that means our hearts, their hearts had a hunger for the wrong things. And if he says there are examples, that means that we have the tendency to hunger for those wrong things or chase after those wrong things just as they did. So he's writing these things so that we would not go down that same path. And then verse 7, and then he identifies, he identifies what's wrong or where we're going wrong. And do not become idolaters as some of them. Now, don't confuse idolaters with adulterers. Adultery is referring to sexual sins. Idolatry refers to worshiping an idol, idolizing someone or something, worshiping the wrong thing. And, and Paul says there was this disconnect between they ate and they drank the provisions from God, but then they got up to do whatever they wanted to do, that they were just oblivious to all the things God had given them. Now, Paul's words are very intentional, and they were not, they, they were not, Israel was not intentional about maintaining the relationship that God started with them. They did the Passover, they followed Moses out, but they were completely ungrateful and unengaged with the work that God was trying to do in them. They benefited from being part of the nation that God saved, but as individuals, they were not really plugged in. Now, the difference in us and them is we aren't here because of our heritage or our race. We weren't born into this. We consciously are saved and we come to Jesus. Yet, yet, we can become as relaxed as they got and we can miss out on so much just like they did. For the Jews, they celebrated the Passover, they sacrificed their lamb, they painted the doorposts as individuals and as families, but it was just a ritual for so many of them. They walked out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, they were saved by God's mercy, yet I mean, you can't even imagine how in the world could they go through all that and it not sink in the same way you and I are saved by God's grace and power and it doesn't sink in. Oh, we're going to heaven when we die, but we aren't living quite in step with heaven while we are here on earth. You see that, that we get in, but we don't really dig in. We are uprooted from sin like they were uprooted from Egypt, but our roots never get deep in Christ. That's what Paul is concerned about, that we're being saved, but we're not growing, that we're uprooted from sin, but our roots are not getting planted in Jesus. Now, we, just, we just consume this all casually, and Paul points to our internal nature as the reason for this, that something is still wrong inside of us that needs to be addressed lest we perish like the Jews did in the wilderness. They never made it to the promised land. Now, let me make this very clear. The promised land was not a picture of heaven. Heaven is a picture of heaven. There is no representation of that on earth. The promised land in Israel was a picture of abundant life that you and I can have in Christ. So Paul is talking to Christians who, though they are saved and know Jesus, though we are saved and know Jesus, we are at risk of being spiritually malnourished. 
We're under God. We're upon the rock. Yet there's some kind of disconnect and we're not growing spiritually. That we're never stepping into what God has for us and thus the church is not growing because we are not growing. Again, there's a lot of people around besides us, but we play a part. We're going to read things like verse 5 where it says they were scattered in the wilderness. Verse 9 says they were destroyed. Uh, and, and Paul's going to repeat that throughout the next couple of chapters, 10 and 11. And it makes it clear that Christians, sometimes we forget why we came to Jesus and what he brings to us and we end up falling short or, or coming short of getting all that he has for us. And the reason is, as he identifies in verse 7, we've become idolaters and we cling to idols. Let me, let me just make, make you all aware of something. Maybe you didn't know this. Do you know that Israel never struggled with worshiping idols when they lived in Egypt? You don't read about that, do you? Read Exodus 1 through 14. They don't ever worship idols. But as soon as they get out of Egypt and they get in the wilderness and they're under the, rock, under the cloud and under the fire and they're on the rock, all of a sudden, as the people of God, you start reading about them worshiping idols. And you're thinking, why would you start worshiping idols now? Maybe I understand it back whenever you were lost and you didn't know God, and you weren't in his kingdom, but now you're in the kingdom, and you're, what? So let me just make this very clear. Don't think that idolatry is something that only lost people get into. Because this chapter is written to Christian people. Israel didn't start worshiping idols until they became Israel. That's pretty, not scary, but that's pretty sobering, don't you think? That something wakes up in our hearts that doesn't want to lose us to God. And instead of bowing before Jesus and serving him, we start bowing before these idols and serving them. And by idols, I don't mean physical statues, figures of this world, people of this world. Idols, verse 6 tells us, are these lusts and these sinful desires in our hearts. Notice the correlation. Their sinful desires led to sinful actions, but the actions were preceded by desires. Now, we're going to run through some verses real quick that's going to make all this come together. They were, di they are, they were in disregard to the newfound relationship they had with God, being under him and upon him. They didn't respond to the spiritual care he was giving them, and it showed up in their lack of spiritual lifestyles and discipline. And because they didn't realize what God was providing them and didn't take full advantage of it, they weren't prepared for the tests and the trials that they faced. Now, here, verse 11 through verse 13. All these things happened to them as examples that they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Oh, I don't have an idol problem. I don't worship idols. I don't have, that. I don't have these lustful desires in my heart that's leading me away from God. Paul says, hey, let the one who thinks they stand take heed. And then he says in verse 13, this is some good news, but also some, helps us understand the bad part of this or the, or the difficult part of this. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, that we all have the same problem. We all share the same problem. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, 
but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So not that it just goes away, but you've got to figure out how to work your way out of it. That tells me there's something in our hearts that just isn't right and it isn't going away. We've got to learn how to coexist with it and ultimately overcome it. Now, I want to talk about the nature of the temptations that we face and talk about the help that God has provided us. And that's gonna, that means I need to show you a few verses as we wrap up. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So God is not the one who puts these things in our heart. They didn't come from him. They're not there because of him. They're there because it's trying to keep us from him. And, and that's sin. He goes on to say, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So something in us that is desiring alternative things, things that are not from God. The desire conceived gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So sin is preceded by some kind of emotion, some kind of desire, some kind of fault in our heart. So this is what this tells us. Our hearts are not neutral. Our hearts are not neutral. They are inclined towards sin. And James isn't making this up. Paul obviously agrees with him. And there's verses all over the Bible that make this very clear. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4, keep your heart or guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life as in your heart is very vulnerable. And you, you, may, you may think you make decisions from your brain, but you make decisions from your heart. It's based on how you feel and what you feel about certain things and how you process those things and you better be close to guard your heart because the rest of you comes from your heart and Jeremiah he doesn't hold back the heart is deceitful above all things it's desperately sick who can understand it or who can figure it out who can solve the problem so Solomon said you better guard it Jeremiah says it's sick James says it's where your thoughts are coming from that's going to cause you to sin. And listen to how Jesus traced everything that comes out of us, he, everything that we do externally, every sin that we commit. Look at how he traces it back to our heart. Mark chapter 7. He said, what comes out of the person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts. So before we ever get to evil things, evil deeds, it's evil thoughts, evil feelings. And then he goes on to list sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things that you do or call actions, but they come, he says in the last verse, all these things come from within and they defile a person as in the corruptus. These evil things are, are from within us and are within us all because all of us have a heart that is bent towards sin, dominated by sinful lusts and desires. And unless we allow God to counter, we will remain enslaved by them. Now, I want to argue as we close, I want to argue that there are, that sin manifests itself in a handful of very few, hand, very few ways in terms of how it influences us and, and steers our hearts. I identified four major enemies of the heart that have set up camp in all of our hearts and that translate to and produce sinful actions. And we actually, whether we admit it or not, realize it or not, we idolize these enemies. And by idolize, I mean we obey them. 
Now, these, these enemies, they're actually emotions. They're feelings. And we idolize them, we protect them, and we are fueled by them, and we bow at their altars and obey them. Paul, James, Solomon, Jeremiah, and Jesus believe this. Now, I've identified four enemies of the heart, emotional idols that manifest themselves into sinful actions, and the four that I've brought, that I've found in God's word are fear, anger, greed, and jealousy. Every sin, every sin stems from these four unchecked emotions. Think about it. Fear causes us to cling to the wrong things and thus we do things we never would have done because we've shifted our allegiance, we've shifted our faith and we act based on where we have put our faith because we're trying to solve that fear, trying to fix that fear. Think about the things that you do wrong that are really just a result of fear dominating your heart and ordering you around because you're scared not to. Anger. Anger causes us to become bitter. It causes us to be consumed about getting what we deserve. We become hateful and we begin living with hateful actions. Think about the pain that you cause in others because you ourselves carry around pain that has been unattended. Hurt people hurt people. Angry people do angry things. Greed causes us to consider ourselves only. When we only consider ourselves, we detach ourselves from those around us that God has commanded us to love and serve. Think about how when we give into greed, we take and we take and we really don't care what it ha- what it, how it affects anybody else. Jealousy causes us to not appreciate what God has given us and thus we don't use the gifts and resources he's given us for him, but we live in misery because we are upset that others have what we wish we had. And we get angry at the world because we're jealous of how somehow, way, the world got something that we should have got. Think about how we can't help but tear others down and want what others have all because we are following orders from jealousy. Listen, these emotions, these idols, they are giant shrines in our hearts. And when we give in to them, we are bowing to them and we are worshiping them. And verse 12 says, be careful if you think you stand, you will fall. And verse 13 says, the temptations we face are common. They're common as in they're, they're similar in all of us. They're shared in all of us. James, Solomon, Jeremiah, Paul, and Jesus tell us they all come from sinful, wounded hearts. And are we weaker in some areas over the others? Yes. Some things that we go through cause us to be more fearful, more angry, more greedy, more jealous, but all of us are weak in these areas. And these emotions are ready to enslave us. And if we do not take God's way of escape, we will be which was outlined for us in the first five verses where Paul is saying that we're in Christ, we're under God, we're upon the rock. The promises that we have can save us from these emotions. Now, verse 13 ends by saying there is a way of escape that we might be able to bear it. And that's what I wanna talk about. That you may be able to bear it or endure it. That you might would learn how to manage it, master and match these emotions with spiritual power. Understand that you've got them, learn how to overcome them through Jesus and know how to counter them through Christ and with something greater and something greater than their power. So let's figure out 
this, let's figure this out before we get out of here. How can we manage to manage, how can we manage master and match fear? By faith in God. That sounds simple, but it's so true. How can we manage and master and match fear? By faith. We don't have to act in fear because we can live by faith. Jesus said whenever he found them in the middle of the storm, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What, what are you afraid of? If your faith is in Jesus, should you still be afraid? Why are you still afraid if your faith is in Jesus? Those are questions we need to answer because if we cannot get to the bottom of those questions, fear will dominate us and we will find something to turn to. How can we manage, master, and match anger? There's only one way, by forgiveness. We don't have to live in anger because we can live by Forgiveness. There's no excuse. You know, I know, I, listen, I'm, we're, I, we're all hypocrites in these. I'm a hypocrite in these, but this is so powerful if we would just live by this. I should never, ever, ever, ever be angry for more than just a few seconds. You know why? Because forgiveness is always available. What does Paul say in Ephesians? Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If you ever find a sin that God did not forgive in you through Jesus, then you have an excuse not to forgive somebody else. But good, good news is God washed you clean of your sin. So you are free to wash anybody else clean of the sins they've done against you. Yeah, let them off the hook. Because you know who's really on the hook? We are, Right? Because that's what anger does. It keeps us on that hook. Why are we angry? Why are we angry? Who are we angry at? As Jesus forgave us, forgive them and don't let anger dominate you. How can we manage, master, and match greed? By generosity. We don't have to live with our fists clenched because we can live with open hands. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 6 is better as a handful of quietness and contentment than two hands striving with toil and striving after the wind. Are you greedy? What are you greedy with and what are you greedy for? You think you've got to cling to everything to survive, to be happy, but we worship a Savior who laid his life down and gave everything away and is the most satisfied person in the universe. And he says to you and me, you know why the New Testament says to give, 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 and that's the answer to all your problems? Because Jesus gave to the very end. And that's the solution to the peace that we look for in this world. How can we manage master and match jealousy? By rejoicing. This may sound weird, but when we get jealous of people, the solution is to say, God, thank you for being good to them. They may not deserve what they have, but you gave it to them. So thank you. You know what that does for your heart? It allows you to look around and see what God's given you and allows you to be a lot happier. It allows you to find joy Philippians 4.19 says that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. So if he gave to someone else what he didn't give to you, rejoice that he gave to them because he gives to you as well. That's the solution to jealousy. 
Listen, we could preach four sermons on these four things, and we probably have before, probably will again. But this is just a taste of what we need to be aware of. Jesus promises he gives to everyone what they need. So let's be happy when he gives someone else something and not us. And let's be happy for what he gives us that we might learn how to enjoy life and not be so down because of things that maybe we we wish we had. Listen how Paul closes this in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If fear is dominating you, if anger is dominating you, if jealousy and greed is dominating you, Paul says, flee from these idols. They only creep up in your life after you've come to Christ. They try to get in between you and him. So church, I'm gonna ask you this because this, this is so vital for your, salva- for your fulfillment of, of your salvation, for getting the all of God that you can. Are we worshiping Jesus or are we worshiping these idols? Who do we obey? Our emotions that go after these things that cause us to sin as these emotions manifest themselves from the words we use to the things that we do, the way that we try to find peace in the world because we feel like that we're missing out on something. Are we worshiping Jesus or are we worshiping idols? Have we mastered these emotions through Christ? God has made a way of escape. The way of escape is realizing that Jesus is enough and that we are under God and we are upon the rock of Jesus. So why should we give in to these thoughts that try to take us away and steer us away and tempt us away? Every temptation is common. We all share these emotions that try to get us away from God. But let us be on guard and let us be aware. Let us guard our hearts that we might be able to bear these things. Again, manage these things, master these things, and match them with something better. Faith over fear. Forgiveness over anger. Rejoicing over jealousy. Generosity and giving over greed. This is how we overcome these idols. Instead of laying something down at their altar, we go lay something different down at the altar of Jesus. And he frees us from these temptations. We all face them. Don't be ashamed to admit that you've got these temptations. Don't be ashamed to admit that you fell short against these temptations. Run to Jesus who says, I can help you overcome so that we don't miss out like Israel missed out, like so many miss out. Because idolatry is no joke. And the only solution for I is him. The only solution for the sin in me is the savior for me and for you. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for being so kind and so good to us. Lord, it's so so odd that we only often ever come to these idols after we first come to you. We, We come to you and we are instantly tempted to go astray. And and Lord, that's no surprise. The enemy's trying to keep us from getting to that promised land, that abundant life. Lord, I pray that you might would open our eyes to the sin that we struggle with, the temptation that it originates from. Lord, if there's anybody here tonight that's got some fear in their life and that causes them to cling to the wrong things, anger that causes them to just lash out at people, greed that causes them to hold themselves back and, and they never really get involved because they just don't really see how they have time for it. Uh, maybe jealousy that makes them always look around but they never look up. 
Lord, help us not to fall victim to these same idols. Help us to overcome these idols by worshiping Jesus and finding that way to escape so that we don't fall short like Israel did before us. We ask this in Jesus' name for the help he provides. Amen.